0: Hi, this is Lily DeJoyas Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Welcome to this podcast. Today we're talking about Exodus, chapters 35 through 40, which constitutes the end of Exodus. And then we're talking about a few chapters in Leviticus, specifically chapters 1, 16, and 19. So, interesting selections here. We'll kind of talk a little bit about, in general, what's going on in Leviticus. But we're really going to kind of focus on the laws that are given here to the people of Israel who are not in good shape after having been oppressed by the slavery to the Egyptians for so long. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Again, as usual, I want to welcome any new listeners and particularly want to thank Patreon subscribers. Thanks so much for supporting the podcast and allowing me to create some extra content. I really appreciate that as well as all my listeners. So let's talk about Exodus 35. We have a reminder about observing the Sabbath day and then a call to give materials for the building of the tabernacle. Now, there was a temporary tabernacle that we mentioned before that Moses had entered into to converse with the Lord, but this is now going to be their traveling temple, basically. So this traveling tabernacle that can be assembled and disassembled but is carried with the children of Israel as they travel in the wilderness for 40 years before they get to the land of Canaan. So as we did in early days of the restoration, and actually until not that long ago, because it was still in my early lifetime, that there were some buildings that were being built by voluntary labor, as well as the contributions of the members. And there were like budget assessments and building assessments that were requested by bishops that would bring you in and say, we really need this much from you to build a chapel. Or when temples were being built, certainly even as an adult, when we were building temples, there were times where they would make assessments for the temple that they needed each family to contribute a certain amount. Or according to their incomes, they were assessed a certain amount. So this has been a longstanding practice in the church from the beginnings. Now, of course, because the church does have the means, because of all the tithes that have been collected over these years and how the church has grown and so on, that they have eliminated the need for building assessments in the in the budgets. So there, it is a great blessing to live at a time like this where we can have a church that, because of our tithes and offerings, can support programs in the third world where they couldn't possibly generate enough income from the local residents to build the magnificent temples and the wonderful church buildings that we have in some of those areas. So really a terrific blessing. But this is the standard way, but it was by the offerings of the people in both goods, material, you know, labor. So in Exodus chapter 35, verse 21, it says, And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him up, and everyone whom his spirit made willing. And they brought the Lord's offering to the work of the tabernacle of the congregation and for all his service and for the holy garments. And again, in verse 22, just following, And they came both men and women, as many as were willing-hearted. And they brought many offerings, right? So the Lord wants willing sacrifices. He doesn't want us to, to do this out of compulsion. That's not his way. If we want to build up the kingdom, we are to give these things out of our willingness. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't pay your tithing unless you're willing to live on 10% less for the good of the kingdom. It means that we should adjust our hearts to not covet our own property and that we should come forth willingly to give these things to the Lord in the payment of our tithes and our offerings or any other way that the Lord asks us to contribute to the kingdom. We make these covenants, right? So anyway, but there's another interesting phrase that I want to point out in chapter 35 of Exodus Back to verse 10, every wise hearted among you shall come and make all that the Lord hath commanded. So this term wise hearted or a version of that is used many times in this chapter. Verse 25, again, all the women that were wise hearted did spin with their hands. And then again, verse 35, them hath he filled with wisdom of heart to work all manner of work. So in the footnotes, at one point, it says that what this really means is skilled talented or skilled. That's in the footnote to verse 10. Everyone that is talented or skilled. So when it's talking about wise-hearted, it's talking about the wisdom of craftsmanship or the ability to make beautiful things, beautiful fabrics, beautiful garments, beautiful woodwork or metalwork, and all kinds of decorations and offerings to the Lord in this physical tabernacle. I would just add that it is wise to give to the Lord. So while the intention here in the translation came from the idea of having skills and some of these great abilities, these artisans who could contribute beautifully to this work, that it is wise, it is wisdom in us to give willing to the Lord when He asks for things. And I will say that the membership of the church has shown this again and again in some beautiful ways when there are calls for hygiene kits, when there are calls for you know, some kinds of donations of whatever kind, extra missionary donations, whatever. The, the church members in so many cases are generous. And this has allowed us to do so much good in the world with our own people, but also with the people of the world to do good works because of the willing-heartedness and the wise-heartedness of so many of you, of so many of God's members of his kingdom here on earth. It's a beautiful thing. Now, going on... The last few chapters of Exodus then deal with the building of the tabernacle, and it goes into some detailed description there. And the whole book of Exodus, just to review, covers about 81-ish years, because it begins really with the birth of Moses. And then here we are when Moses has completed the two first thirds of his life's mission. The first 40 years, as we said, as a prince of Egypt, the next 40 as a shepherd in the wilderness, and then the last year or so being called of God to go back to Egypt and bring forth the children of Israel with the mighty hand of the Lord, and then bring them into the wilderness where God wants to be able to fulfill their potential and offers them that chance to become a Zion people and then is rejected of them at that level of offering, but then continues to designate them as his people. Now, why is that? Well, God has a plan, and he didn't, again, he's not surprised when people blow it. So he's not surprised that the children of Israel were not prepared for that level of advancement or that level of living. They had been involved in a pretty celestial culture there in Egypt and affected by that, as we see again and again. Nevertheless God had designated that through this group all the nations of the world would be blessed. And we talked about that when we talked about the 12 sons of of Jacob who became Israel that founded these 12 tribes that they weren't all righteous but the Lord can work through them. And he wanted to preserve them as a distinct people instead of letting them mix with the rest of the world so that he could send prophets who would record great messianic prophecies and other essential parts of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we could have them in a later day and they could testify of Christ. And then through this line, and specifically through the line of Judah, would come the great Messiah in the meridian of time, who would atone for the sins of the world if we will repent and would break the bands of death for everyone. So great things are being done through this house of Israel even though the house of Israel many times rejects the Lord and and does that, frankly, repeatedly in the Old Testament. We'll talk a little bit more about that, too, as we're concluding this podcast. But So now here in the book of Leviticus, let's just contrast this with the book of Exodus. Exodus covers a span, as I said, of about 81 years. Leviticus covers eight days. So that's kind of a, a marked contrast, even though we have a pretty substantial book here because it really does record so many of then the commandments given to Israel through Moses about how the people are to govern themselves and how they are to interact with God. And he gives them this always, he begins with the basic commandments of the gospel. Remember we mentioned that the Ten Commandments didn't begin here or end here. They are repeated in every dispensation. And from the beginning of time, these commandments were given to Adam and Eve. They are, form the foundation of any civilized society. And they've been adopted, or measures of them or similar kinds of core principles have been adopted by any citizenry who has established some measure of a civilized society. At any rate, that's a core foundation of all laws. So those were not taken away from the house of Israel just because they defiled themselves with the golden calf what happens is that there are additional laws added to that basic foundational principle of governance. And these were the schoolmaster law or the law of carnal commandments that we refer to many times. Now, many people then kind of characterize the law of Moses as this schoolmaster law. And while it comprised part of the law that was revealed to the house of Israel through Moses, it's, it's not really Mosaic Law. Mosaic Law is actually a wonderful, functional, equitable way to govern a people. And again, we'll get into some of that detail in a moment, but let's mention that what is mentioned here in, in the beginning of Leviticus are parts of the schoolmaster law. So this is added unto the basic principles of governance in order to try to keep the people occupied enough with remembering God and observing all these different requirements that they wouldn't be as quick to stray, as well as to keep them more separate and distinct as a people and help them to retain that separateness from the other communities around them when they end up settling in Canaan. Now, if you want more information and detail on some of these offerings, You can go to Cleon Skousen's Third Thousand Years volume, which covers most of this time and is really a great explanation. I think Brother Skousen did a tremendous job in helping me understand the Law of Moses. I'm going to share a lot of that with you here, but if you want more detail, I would refer you to that book. But just summarizing, we have peace offerings. We have a wave offering or a heave offering. It was sometimes called another one that is a trespass or guilt offering, a milk or meal offering, and i'm sorry a meat or meal offering, and a drink offering and these are done like a lot <laughs> you know so and there were washings that needed to be done by the priests in a certain way, and they needed to spill the blood a certain way and kill the animals in a certain way and and all of this is described in significant detail in these, in this book of Leviticus. So you can you can get into that if you're interested. Also, were added dietary laws, health concerns were part of that. God has always cared about the well-being of His people physically, and has asked us to take care of the bodies of our temple, the temples of our spirit, I should say. So there are lots of strictures here that are given or directions that are given that really, as we look back now with our knowledge of today, we can see were because some animals carry disease more likely than others or were harder to keep from disease. So some of those dietary laws that had that purpose. Another part of the dietary laws or a purpose of the dietary laws was to keep them separate again from other peoples. While they were going to enter into some trade agreements or have some interaction with other people's The fact is that if you can't eat the same way as your neighbors eat, then there's sort of a prevention there of becoming too familiar because you're not going to share dinners. You're not going to have lunch together. You're not going to have festivals together because the way you're preparing your food is so distinct from the other people. So while there might be some hopefully you know appropriate relationships, friendly relationships, maybe trade, but there wouldn't be a complete integration or getting too close to other people because they're not going to eat together. Some of the specific prohibitions, and, and one of these that has had a big impact on observant Jews, even today, comes from Exodus 34. And we didn't mention this last week, kind of skipped over this one, but in verse 26 of that chapter, God instructs the children of Israel that thou shalt not seethe, which means kind of like simmer, right? Thou shalt not seethe a kid in his mother's milk. And this has had huge ramifications. It says even in the footnotes, I believe, that one of the reasons that this was given as a commandment to the house of Israel was because that was a pagan practice. It was something done by people who had many gods and worshipped images in some really awful ways. And so God is saying, we are not adopting the practices of pagan organizations or rituals or peoples. So don't do that but from that has come a whole list of now restrictions in observant Jews lives when it comes to dietary practice so you may have heard of the phrase keeping kosher and you've seen it maybe on some food labels and so on that this is a, these are kosher pickles or these are kosher items and that has reference to these dietary laws that are still being practiced by many Jews So keeping kosher has taken from that verse in Exodus 34, one of the big things is dividing the preparation of milk products, any dairy products, from the preparation of any meat products, and even sometimes separating the times of eating so that you don't eat milk or dairy dishes within at least one hour, and some practice longer periods of time like that, up to five or six hours before you're eating meat products. Some don't observe quite as strict practice, but this is where this all came from, where these principles from the Old Testament that are taught in commandments to the House of Israel. And I remember having a good friend in Las Vegas who was from New York and had grown up there, and she gave me some interesting details about some of her Jewish friends and neighbors that were still keeping kosher, as many people do. And she said, if you were in their house and you were helping to set the table, for instance, you would always ask, milk or meat? Because there were separate dishes and utensils for milk foods and dairy foods, as opposed to those that were meat foods. So you wanted to know what was being served so that you would use the appropriate utensils and not mix them again. Another thing I believe is that, that all places that prepare kosher foods have been blessed by a rabbi. And the rabbi has checked to see that All the processing materials and all the equipment used to process dairy foods are separate and always are kept separate from those that process meat products. So this is still going on. And of course, there were other things that came out of this that are being observed in our modern world that come from the law of Moses. Things like don't spark a fire on the Sabbath. And we didn't read all the chapters, at least the assigned chapters that we read for Come Follow Me Don't cover some of these in between chapters where some of these specifics are given. And I understand why. Nevertheless, it's kind of interesting just to know that it is from some of those very specific laws that are given and commandments that are given that that people now observe in the Jewish culture, if they are observant Jews, that continue, like not sparking a fire on the Sabbath has kind of translated into not using electricity because there might be a spark somewhere in the circuit somewhere so don't don't turn on a light or turn on an appliance on the sabbath day because of that commandment so now there are actually you know a lot of products that have been created or are I mean developed and marketed for observant Jews that are special ovens and ranges that acted kind of like a crock pot where, you know, you could start it on the day before Shabbat, which was is Friday, and then it would keep your food cooked and warm all through the Sabbath day so that you could eat warm food, but you didn't ever start the machine on the Sabbath because that was prohibited by these laws. And there are lots of things like that. You know, you can, you can take a, a match and light it from... An existing burning flame, like a candle that you lit the day before Sabbath, and then you can go light another lamp with that, but you can't strike a match on the Sabbath because that strikes a spark. So really, it's kind of interesting to see that many of these laws are still being lived by conservative or at least Orthodox Jews or anybody who decides to be observant at that level in the culture of Judaism. Some larger facilities... Like apartment buildings or hotels back east where there is a higher concentration of Jews will have Sabbath elevators so that you don't have to touch a button in the elevator to designate which floor you want to go to on the Sabbath day. It just stops at every floor. So it might take a little longer to get to the fifth floor, but that way you're not the one pushing the button, which might set a spark somewhere along the line because it's mechanical and it involves electricity. Now, I find that, that all kind of interesting. And honestly, I, I respect people who are working to observe the laws that they believe God expects them to observe. So I that touches my heart. But I will say that things can easily get out of control when you're talking about any kind of (laughs) way of living, right? Because sometimes people think if less is more, just think how much more more is. So there was a whole book that has become an important book in the Jewish religion called the Talmud, T-A-L-M-U-D. The Talmud, now it's not the Torah. The Torah are the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are the Torah, the sacred scrolls. But the Talmud, which is not given by Revelation, contains a lot of the rabbinical discussions and debates, mostly from around the 2nd to the 5th century after Christ, where rabbis would discuss the laws given in the Torah and essentially make a fence around the Torah. In fact, the Talmud has been called that, a fence around the Torah. In other words, if in the Torah, in the revelation of of the laws given to the House of Israel, if it says not to do work on the Sabbath day, then it came up as a question, well, can you walk on the Sabbath? Well, how many steps can you walk? And these rabbis would debate how many steps constituted observance of the Sabbath and how many steps violated the commandments regarding the Sabbath. So some of them are quite fascinating. I remember reading some that were about whether or not a woman could show a curl under her headscarf on her forehead. And there was a big discussion back and forth between the rabbis of whether that was ornamentation or if it was vanity or whatever. Anyway, I think they decided that she would be better not to show that curl, that it should be tucked in underneath the headscarf or the head covering. Uh, There was another one I read about whether or not you could throw out dirty dishwater on the Sabbath day. And the discussion goes on for pages as they go back and forth about what it might mean or how it might possibly violate law or maybe it's safe to do it back and forth. And as I remember, the conclusion of this several-page debate was that she better not throw out dirty dishwater because what if it happens to roll downhill and there is a seed in the dust somewhere and the water touches that seed and it gives it some energy to sprout then, oh no, it would be gardening on the Sabbath, which is work. So better not throw out the dirty dishwater on the Sabbath. Kind of fascinating. Of course, this is all stuff that was not taught by Moses or given through Revelation. So it's this fence around the Torah, as I said, which became pretty constrictive. Pretty Talk about schoolmaster law. They already had a schoolmaster law, and it's like they took it up a notch or two in some of these discussions. That said, again, I'm always in admiration of people who are serious about the laws of God, and they want to make sure that they don't violate the laws of God. But as Christ taught when He came, they had missed the point. They got so focused on the law, they didn't remember the purpose of the law, which was to lead them to Jesus Christ so that they would recognize the Messiah when He came to their people. And that is the tragedy, that the law took on a life of its own and became such a focus with so much concern about how many steps you walk on the Sabbath or whether or, not, whether or not you're showing a curl on your forehead or throwing out dirty dishwater that they missed the essence of the law. And that's why we talk about things like the spirit as opposed to the letter of the law. Are we so caught up in the rigidity of observance or the you know exact quantification of our obedience that we forget what God is trying to do with us, which is to help us become more like Jesus Christ, that we don't miss him in our lives and in our life's journey and become his people and allow him to be our God, ask him to be our God, accept him to be our God, as he surely is. So I find that all fascinating. Talking about Leviticus 16, we actually start with kind of a strange beginning that takes us, if we if we want to understand this, we kind of go back to Leviticus 10. But let's begin with the 16th chapter of Leviticus in the very first verse. Turning to that, it says, and the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. Okay, that's a little bit mysterious coming kind of out of the blue if we've missed the intervening chapter. So just to save you a little time. In chapter 10 of Leviticus, we have this story told where, remember again, the whole book of Leviticus takes like eight days. So there are like seven days of preparation of all these things and all the instruction over the ways the sacrifices are to be done, all this kind of stuff again, and how Aaron and his sons prepare themselves. And then when the day has come for them to officiate in these offerings— What happens is that reading from Leviticus 10, verse, let's say, verse 1, yeah, right at the beginning, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord. Strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not and we don't have a detail here given about what that strange fire was, but the best you know assumption is probably that this had to do again with a pagan observance. These young men had been raised in Egypt, and there was paganism on every side and that and we saw how quickly the people of Israel descended into debauchery when Moses was on the mountain so here again, it looks like after all this preparation, after they have been ordained and set apart to officiate in these kinds of services for Israel, these these priesthood, Aaronic priesthood duties for Israel, they offer this strange fire which he commanded them not. Verse 2, there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And then interestingly, Moses tells Aaron, this is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. In other words, Moses is saying, God was very clear on this. He expects those to come before him, officiating in these duties to be of clean hands and pure hearts, to be righteous before him. And if they're not, they'll be destroyed. So Aaron held his peace, meaning here his sons have just been consumed by this fire of the Lord that comes out of this offering because they were making this pagan offering in an unclean way. And so Aaron is is silent. And then he calls two sons that are the sons of one of Aaron's uncles and says to them, come and carry your brethren, this is verse 4, from the sanctuary out of the camp. And so they do that. And Moses says to Aaron and unto the young men who come to do this, he says, uncover not your heads, neither rend your clothes, lest ye die, and lest wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord hath kindled. In other words, they can be sad about the offering being unrighteous. But don't grieve for these men. They had been called and set apart to do this and ordained to this office. And they absolutely desecrated their callings. So they're done and we're not going to mourn them. And any sign of mourning is disrespect toward God. Strong lines. Again, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in our summary. So back to chapter 16 of Leviticus, we get instruction concerning the use of a scapegoat for Israel. And this is where that phrase came from, the scapegoat, meaning that somebody else carries our responsibility or our sins and that we let Somebody else assumed that responsibility for our sins. In this case, it was a goat, and there were two goats that are brought, and they cast a lot, and one of them gets offered, and the other one becomes a scapegoat. This scapegoat carries with them all the sins of the house of Israel. So on this Day of Atonement, which is given, the direction is given here that it be the seventh month of the tenth day, that's in verse 29 of Leviticus 16, And this continues as an observance now called Yom Kippur, and many of you I'm sure have heard of that. This is the holiest of the holy days for Judaism. It's the holiest. Some people think Passover is the holiest time, and that is a very important time in the observance of Judaism, but the most holy day is Yom Kippur, which comes shortly after the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah. Anyway, Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement, and on this day, people are to symbolize that they know that Christ ultimately would carry our sins. Now, they missed Christ. They don't believe that he was the Messiah, so they're still waiting for him. As far as their doctrine teaches, nevertheless, this was a symbol of Jesus Christ who would carry our sins, and they would put all their sins upon that goat. They would confess all their sins, and it was then to be carried by this symbolic scapegoat And then that scapegoat was driven out of the camp and not to dwell with them anymore, but to be out in the wilderness and and carry the sins away. Again, in reference to the fact that we would have a Messiah that would give us a chance to escape from the bondage of sin if we repent. Today, again, it really varies depending on how observant people choose to be in Judaism. Nevertheless, it's recommended that there be about 25 hours of fasting, which is abstaining from all food and water, and even some rabbis would say that includes no brushing of teeth because there's water that might be swallowed, and no sexual relations and other things that are like, let's just stay away from that. Most people don't watch TV or media or like that if they were trying to be observant. Again, there's there's a wide spectrum of how people choose to observe this. One of the other things that some people will still do is to wear white on Yom Kippur as a sign that they're trying to become clean. But again, this can vary. Maybe you have Jewish friends and you see their version of acknowledging if they do Yom Kippur. They're not supposed to work. It is like the Sabbath of the Sabbaths. So a very holy day, even more holy than the Sabbath. So many truly observant Jews will not do their work on Yom Kippur. They will take that day off so that they're not working at their jobs that day, and they treat it even more carefully than the Sabbath day, which is treated very carefully. And then in Leviticus 19, we have kind of a review of many of the commandments that have already been given, but some of them are restated here. And I'm not going to go through the list of them, but it's kind of interesting. Right at the beginning, verse 2, of chapter 19, ye shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Great statement. We're going to be God's people. We need to be holy as he is holy, acknowledging his complete and beautiful holiness, that if we want to be in his presence, we need to be holy as well. Again, wonderful time to review the words of the hymn, More Holiness Give Me, because this is the journey to become God's people. And then it talks about fearing your mother and father. And we've talked about that before, what that means and what it doesn't mean. And then to keep the Sabbath day again. And then again, the warning in verse four, turn ye not unto idols, nor make to yourselves molten gods. I am the Lord your God. And then I'm going to mention this also because I think this is important in terms of Israel's law. We talked about this last year a little bit in the DNC with the law of consecration and how God expects us to take care of the poor. You know, We have the Savior's words himself that say, the poor will always be with you. It's certainly true. There are always people in our midst or around our communities that don't have what others have and sometimes sink to a level that really is an impoverished style of life. And this is something that God expects us to take care of, to do what we can to help alleviate that kind of suffering. Again, I've, I've quoted this before. I don't have a reference on it, but I remember hearing Thomas Monson say this once way back when there were welfare sessions and conferences <laughs> a long time, but it touched me so much when he said that there is a level beneath which no one should sink when so many have so much. Let me say that again. I think it's so beautiful. There is a level, speaking of a level of living or a lifestyle level, a level beneath which no one should sink when so many have so much. Now, I am happy to say that historically the United States has been the most generous of countries, a lot of charitable giving, a lot of charitable donations, and many charities just to begin with, as well as exporting a lot of humanitarian aid to other countries through all kinds of organizations and churches, and churches are one of the huge facilities by which we have given to the poor, and not just our church, which is tremendous in this way but many churches who have lots of different programs and services that they offer to help people who need help. In fact, I read just a headline or a line or two of an article the other day that talked about how with our current economic issues concerning like the growth of inflation right now that has been so rapid and creating problems for people that donations to churches are down. So there's concern that there will be less with which to help the poor and those who, who require help. So it's a concern. It is a concern that we not stop this. And of course, with church attendance having dropped dramatically over the last many years in the United States, as well as in other places, we have heard that there is a lesser resource to work with because people are not as involved in giving through their churches. So charitable organizations and efforts are are somewhat diminished, which is always tragic. One of the things that God put Immediately into the law of Moses, that is quite beautiful, is here in Leviticus 19, starting with verse 9 And when ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. And verse 10 And thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard, thou shalt leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. This was an intrinsic part of the welfare program, basically, which now we're calling the self-reliance program. And that's good because the people were not to be coveting their own property to the point where they have to go and glean every little grain or, or fruit from their fields. But they were intentionally to leave the corners unharvested of every field and then not pick up the things that dropped. Those are the gleanings, right? So if, Something fell off the wagon or somebody dropped something in the harvest process. They were to leave those on the ground so that the poor, by doing their own work, and notice how well this works, you know, that that the poor were not just given these things by sitting in their homes. They were able to come in after the field had been harvested by the owner of the field, and then they knew that the corners could be harvested by themselves so that they could provide for themselves or their families by picking up things that had dropped, gleaning those fields, as well as harvesting the corners. So they did the work that was required for them to then take that food home. But the food was left there by the owner of the field, recognizing that this is is an interrelationship that needs to be honored by Israel and all God's people. That we not squeeze every little penny out of our work, so to speak. We don't take everything that we could, but we make sure that some of it is designated for the poor. And we realize that above our tithes and offerings, if we have plenty that we can give generously. So I like that. And I think that's a a really important principle to recognize that always in God's law is provision for the poor and done by those who have plenty so that the poor are exalted in that the rich are made low, as he says again and again. Interesting detail in verse 29 of Leviticus 19, which says, don't prostitute your daughter. (laughs) I guess they had to put that in print. And I hope that you'll remember that because these people were tough people. They had been extremely affected by their time of servitude and enslavement in Egypt. And they needed a lot of things spelled out. So then one other notice here in chapter 19, it says many times the phrase, I am the Lord. Sometimes I am the Lord your God, but I am the Lord is repeated 14 times in this chapter. And there's a footnote on this from verse 14, it looks like, that says, This phrase occurs 14 times like a seal of authority upon each of these statutes. So basically, it's punctuation, and the Lord is emphasizing that these are coming from me, and I expect you to honor them if you honor me. Which I think is beautiful. And it reminded me, and I said this when we talked about the DNC last year, but let me just say it again that in chapter, or sorry, section 112 of the Doctrine and Covenants, I noticed this same kind of thing done in three verses, verses 25 through 27 of DNC section 112. And this is a very powerful message, by the way, and I think we can see how the Lord is emphasizing it in a similar way. Just going to read this. First of all, uh, the verse before, he talks about the destruction of the wicked, that vengeance cometh speedily upon the inhabitants of the earth, a day of wrath, burning, desolation, etc. And as a whirlwind it shall come upon all the face of the earth, saith the Lord. That's actually the fifth time going in reverse order that this phrase is going to be used. Saith the Lord. The next verse then: Upon my house shall it begin. We've talked about this before, that God is not a hypocrite, so when he comes to destroy the wicked, he's going to clean house first, and then he'll go and take care of all the rest of those guys who are not living at least terrestrial law. So first, he cleans house. He's never going to put himself in a position where he goes to destroy the wicked, and they say, what about those hypocrites in your own church? What about those tares that have been growing amongst the wheat? God will never do that. So he makes it very clear here that he knows what is going on when there are people who are not really observing the law's of God's kingdom, or keeping their covenants in the church, that when the wicked are destroyed, it will start with his own house. Going on, verse 25, reading that again, actually, And upon my house shall it begin, and from my house shall it go forth, saith the Lord. Verse 26, First amongst those among you, saith the Lord, who have professed to know my name, and have not known me, and have blasphemed against me in the midst of my house, saith the Lord. Therefore, verse 27, see to it, never a suggestion when God says see to it, see to it that ye trouble not yourselves concerning the affairs of my church in this place, saith the Lord. Now, I'm using that as an example of emphasis that the Lord can use by basically putting his own seal of authority there, his own name. And that is done in Leviticus chapter 19, but it's also here in section 112 of the DNC with saith the Lord. In Leviticus, it's, I am the Lord, and here it's, saith the Lord. But let's not forget the message, which is also really important and beautiful, because many people leave the church because of the misbehavior of some members or leaders in the church, and the Lord is making it clear. Are you thinking I don't know that? Do you think I'm not aware of that? Like they're pulling a fast one on me, not even, is saying, I know everything that's going on. And when I come to cleanse the wicked, heads are going to roll in my own church first for those who have professed to know me and have not known me and blasphemed me in the midst of my own house. Like, no, I'm not doing hypocrisy. Like, I don't do hypocrisy. So while I may stay my hand for a period of time, because there is a space granted unto men to repent so that consequences are suspended for a period of time in this life, as we all know if we're paying attention. But when the time comes for a cleansing of the wicked, I'll start with my own house. And then what does he say? So therefore see to it, again, not a suggestion, that ye trouble not yourselves concerning the affairs of my church. This is my church, and I will take care of it. So Don't let it drive you out of the church. Don't let it turn you into a hypocrite or you give up on the principles or the keeping of your covenants just because somebody else isn't doing what they should be doing. Really an important message. I think it's a saving message for people who wonder sometimes why the Lord stays his hand and doesn't immediately clean house. It's because he has said that the wheat and the tares will grow together. Okay, I'm getting off track here again, but they're all such great messages, right? Back to the Old Testament, let's just review this section now. Again, let's remember that the laws for God's people always begin with these foundation principles, basically the Ten Commandments, and then prior to the time of Christ, the law of simple sacrifice, because Adam and Eve were given that law, remember, to sacrifice the firstborn, unspotted lamb, representing the great Lamb of God, who would come in the meridian of time to atone for his people and to rescue them from death and from hell if they would repent. So that law of simple sacrifice was fulfilled when Christ came. And since that time, now God still requires sacrifice, but he has designated that as the sacrifice of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. So no longer do we do animal sacrifice. That was fulfilled in Christ. But that was the basic from you know, law that... Basic Ten Commandments, and then a law of simple sacrifice represented by an unspotted lamb prior to Christ, and now the broken heart and the contrite spirit. That's still a part of God's law, is that law of sacrifice. Then laws of reparation. We've talked about this also in the DNC, where it talks about, you know, you wait to forgive somebody until they have made restitution. Not that we hold grudges, that's not what he's saying, but just that you don't, reconcile with that person or allow them to hurt you again unless they have fully completed the process of repentance, which includes making restitution. So that was always included in God's law, and it still is, that if we break something, we need to fix it. If we betray somebody, we need to earn their trust again. if They will allow us to do that, but we should at least live a life that is trustworthy if they want to see that. So we make laws of reparation in every one of God's Peoples, And then there are also, of course, many policies that God gives to his people concerning justice, generosity, including the taking care of the poor, liberty, not imposing our will on other people inappropriately, and equality, so that we treat people as God treats them, no respecter of persons, that we not have prejudice, that we don't think we're better than other people or judge ourselves to be more or less than others. So that's the foundation, basically, of God's law for all his people in every dispensation. But added to those laws, because the children of Israel were such a difficult group, was an elaborate system of sacrifices and offerings. And it is elaborate. Like we said, the peace offering, the heave offering, the wave offering, the meal offering. I mean, there were so many offerings made that were specified in exact type and exact procedure, how the animal is killed, how it's to be treated, who eats it for how many days, and then it's unclean. You know, all kinds of different additional laws are added to God's basic law to the children of Israel because of their disobedience. And it was a taskmaster law. I mean, even when you read through some of this stuff, you can only imagine how physically demanding it is to get all this cattle and go through all the rituals and then take care of the carcasses or burn these and eat these and then throw it anyway. It's really, really very elaborate. I I even thought of the physicality of it, how these men are lifting these animals all over the place and having to do all this stuff. And then, of course, the children of Israel also had to bring offerings and then the priests handled it in all these different ways. Then they had the dietary laws, the laws of purification, and all those added laws and requirements were done away with at the time of Christ. They were designed to keep God front and center to the house of Israel because they were so quick to forget. So yes, it was elaborate. Yes, it was time consuming. It, it really did get their attention. If they were going to keep all those different requirements, they were busy a lot of the time in fulfilling those different laws and requirements and sacrifices. But all of that went away at the time of Christ. And he said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So all of this was to help direct you to Jesus Christ. And then, of course, as a people, they missed him because they got too fixated on the law itself. The how many steps on the Sabbath, you throw out dirty dishes, all that kind of stuff took their attention More than the point of the law, which was to turn them to Christ. Notice that in the Book of Mormon, we have a people who have been given the same instruction. Lehi, when he and his family leave Jerusalem, are observing this same law, the foundation law that never changes dispensation to dispensation, but also the added schoolmaster law of the elaborate systems of sacrifices and offerings, and the dietary laws, the laws of purification, all of that. And Lehi and his family, as they establish that branch of Israel in the new world, observed those same laws. And what do they say about it? They say that they understood the purpose of the law, which was Jesus Christ. So they didn't miss the point The law was constructed in such a way that those who were humble and honest of heart could understand that it was all to bring them to Christ, and they could come to Christ and teach their children to come to Christ in that law. But they also observed it until Christ came and visited the people in the New World at which time that law was fulfilled for them and they no longer had to keep all the extra practices that were the schoolmaster law or what we also call the law of carnal commandments. So anytime it's referenced as the law of carnal commandments or the schoolmaster law, that refers to that added and additional and elaborate system of observances that was to try to keep the people focused on Christ and his coming. And again, you know, they missed the forest for the trees. Let's take a minute, though, and talk about the genius of the Mosaic law. So this foundation law that God revealed through Moses is actually better than most of our current systems of law, which a lot of people will maybe strain at for a minute, but think about it. Now, so often the law of Moses gets a bad rap because we just think of the way it's depicted so many times or described as an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And as so many have said, you know, then the whole world would be blind and toothless. So it seems like a law of retribution like somebody's going to take your eye, whether it's accidental or on purpose, we're going to take his eye. So we're going to, you know, just get vengeance every time somebody hurts somebody else, there's going to be vengeance. But that was not the way the law was applied or administered. So if you go back and look at the historical text and so on, there was no intention here to just deprive people of teeth and eyes or whatever else that they actually did to harm their fellows. But the idea was to compensate the victim. Now think about that because our laws do not compensate the victim. Like let's say somebody slashes your tires or steals your car. Are they required by law to give it back or then they face the penalty? No. What they have to do is make sort of a reparation to the state. So the state decides, not very much anymore right now, but to imprison them. You know, they go to trial or whatever, and then they're imprisoned. Or maybe there are fines that are, that are imposed on the offender, but those fines go to the state. And that imprisonment is a debt owed to the you know, basic society, but administered by the state. And there is no compensation for the victim. So if somebody steals your car or slashes your tires, if you want compensation for what was taken or destroyed, you have to start a whole different course of action in our laws currently that is called a civil suit. It's not the criminal path. It's the civil suit where fine, I'm going to sue that person. And if I win at court, then I have to figure out a way to collect from them because they might not have money, in which case I'm, I've spent a lot of money for nothing. And I have to pay my own attorneys to represent me in this civil suit, which is designed to get compensation for the injury that I suffered because the state isn't interested in compensating the victim. The state just takes the responsibility in our current laws to punish the, the offender. Does that make sense? So in our laws, it's all about, you know, okay, you offended our laws, so the state is going to take action to impose a penalty on that. And again, we're not imposing very many penalties in some of our communities right now, so things are really a mess. Nevertheless, that was the basic idea of our law, based on English common law. While the Mosaic law is all about compensating the victim. So it wasn't if somebody accidentally or on purpose costs you the loss of your eye, then we're going to poke their eye. No, it was like, how are you going to compensate the victim that you have harmed? And if you aren't sufficiently motivated by that, then, you know, the other alternative would be that your own eye would be forfeit. They're not just imposing these penalties in a harsh way. It's like, no, here's your incentive. Because if you don't make it right with the victim, this is what's waiting for you. Now, how many people do you think didn't try to make compensation? And even if they didn't have money to say like, well, you know, I have cost you this injury, so I'm going to compensate you in a, you know, heavy monetary way so that I can go away and be square with, with the victim. And if they didn't have that money, then they would work for them and say, okay, well, then I'll give you my labor for how many years before you feel satisfied that I have compensated for the injury I cost you. Does that make sense? It's really a much better system because you don't end up with a whole bunch of people in prison. And there are some concerns about having all these people in prison who don't seem to be rehabilitated. And a lot of them end up recidivists, meaning that they offend again once they are released and at the cost of the community. And we have to provide for these people in these penitentiaries, which is a lousy system and a lot of unfortunate things happen there. So again, As far as things are now, that's what we have, and we should obey our laws rather than distort them or just ignore them. Nevertheless, this Mosaic law was a genius law. Because you really didn't end up with a lot of people in prison. They were motivated by the alternative that if I don't compensate this person for the loss of their crops or the loss of whatever, then I will have to give up my own health, well-being, eye, tooth, whatever. And I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to compensate them, whether through money or work. So that the victim is protected from that loss and compensated for it, and there were some, you know, really basic principles in the law of Moses. Like any thief who stole something from a then victim had to return twice as much money, and if it involved cattle or sheep, etc., that the thief had to return even more than twice of what they had taken. So again, there was a compensation. The thief wasn't locked up for a certain number of years, and then the victim still was living without their sheep or their cattle or their money that was stolen. The victimizer had to compensate the victim to satisfy the intent of the law. And that worked pretty well. Also, there was not a police force, really, it was the people. Who observed this law and if they had a complaint against somebody else who had cost them an injury or taken property, they went before the judges and presented their case. And the judge was then supposed to investigate and look and see yes, if that really was a theft or an injury or whatever, then they would hold accountable the victimizer until they had correctly and sufficiently compensated the victim. There are a lot of times in these records and maybe you've noticed when it, like talks about the Sabbath day that he who violates the Sabbath day will be put to death or a child who is disobedient or dishonoring their mother or father will be put to death. So there are quite a few things that kind of fall under what we might consider the category of capital crimes meaning that they involve the death penalty. Nevertheless, again, if you are able to study more completely what the law of Moses was in its actual application, Here, too, you see the genius of the law. The designation of these things as something warranting potentially the death penalty was a strong signal and communication to Israel that these things were particularly heinous to God. You can't do some of these things without the heavy potential penalty of death hanging over your head. But in actual application of the law, hardly anybody was put to death Again, what they had as an option was to provide compensation to the community or, you know, in general to the group that they had harmed. So if it was a Sabbath day violation, generally the options were that you either pay a fine, a heavy fine that was imposed by the church leadership there, as well as reforming your behavior so you don't continue to violate this important law Or you have to be cut off from among the people. In other words, you're now in an exiled situation. You have to leave the house of Israel and go and live with uh, some of the neighboring communities or whatever they'll take you. So that was generally the application of these capital crimes. So don't get too freaked out when you would see that, like, gosh, if you don't keep the Sabbath day, they're going to kill you. That's really not how it was applied. But that emphasis, as by calling it something that was worthy of death, was to emphasize that the Lord was saying these particular behaviors are particularly offensive to God and to the community. So they were designated that way. The one capital crime that was enforced in the House of Israel or was intended to be enforced was first-degree murder. So first-degree murder, as you may understand, is not just, it's not manslaughter. It's not an accidental behavior that results in the death of somebody else. It's intentional. It's premeditated. The intent to kill is there. It comes from hatred, as the Lord explains in the New Testament, that it starts with hatred and disrespect of a person to a point where you want to take their life and you plan to do so and carry out the plan. It is first degree premeditated murder with the intention to do that kind of ultimate harm to somebody and end their life. And in that case, there was no option but death. So, first degree murder was punished by stoning. And the people were to do that. Now, another safety plan in the law of Moses was that before the sentence of death could be carried out, the accusers had to be the ones to first cast the stone. So any accusers and the witnesses who backed them up and said, yes, indeed, this person was guilty of premeditated murder, they had to pick up the stone and first start the execution of the the convicted killer, of the convicted murderer. And that was a pretty strong inhibition towards those who were trying to falsely accuse. It it was a pretty good deterrent against people who were just going to accuse their neighbors of murder because they would have to pick up the stone and be the first ones to start that execution. So, you know, they had to think carefully, am I willing to take it to that point and not just falsely accuse people? So there was a protection there as well. And of course, there had to be two witnesses to a capital crime, at least two witnesses, not just one person could accuse their neighbor of something so heinous. So... A big takeaway that I hope you can get from these chapters is that although God is often painted as an harsh God in the Old Testament, and many people still would say, oh, you know, the God of the Old Testament is a harsh, punitive, angry God. But two points. First of all, the law of Moses is not nearly what it sounds like at first glance. They were not going around poking out eyes and pulling out teeth. And they weren't just stoning everybody either. It was a system of compensating the victim, and these penalties were held in reserve so that if they didn't make a motivated effort to compensate the victim in an appropriate way at an appropriate level, then those penalties were right there waiting to be imposed. Very seldom did it come to that point because people were very motivated to compensate the victims, which made for a much better outcome than just imprisoning somebody or casting everybody out of the community. Also, look who God was dealing with. And this is another super important point. Look who he was dealing with. Moses was not up that mountain even a full month and a half before they were involved in debauchery and sexual sins of the worst kind in honor of pagan gods and giving those idols and false gods the credit for having taken them out of Egypt saving them from slavery in Egypt. So these people are weak. They are incredibly weak. They are quick to disobey and very slow to obey. So God imposes this huge law of lots of observations to try to keep them focused on changing their ways from the ways of idolatry and these horrible, licentious, debauched, evil practices that they had seen from the pagans around them, and and to try to bring them to a place where they can actually come to know their God and their Savior and be saved if they will come to a place of obedience. Now, as we'll see in the rest of the record of the Old Testament, these people were not very consistently successful at any of that. They often went after their neighbor's God's They wanted to be like their neighbors, and they were constantly involved in those kinds of practices, and the prophets are forever lamenting and calling them back and trying to get them to pay attention to what Israel's God offers to his people and what he offers to us now. So he was working with a very weak people. In fact, I want to talk about that for a second, because it has occurred to me, just as I've gone through life and observed different things in history as well as things more currently, It becomes clear that people who have been oppressed by some kind of authoritarian rule, like a really oppressive rule, like slavery for the Israelites in Egypt, or also like those who lived under communist Russia. Remember, the USSR was a very authoritarian rule. What about the people also in communist China, who continue to live under a very authoritarian government, where freedoms are incredibly limited? And that at any moment, if you're seen as an enemy to the state, you know, off you go. North Korea is another one. Cuba has been that way. So another one that was maybe less obviously so was Franco's Spain. There was a General Francisco Franco. In fact, he called himself Generalissimo because that's kind of like this ultimate General Francisco Franco. And he was the dictator in Spain for many years. In fact, when I was there on a six-month abroad trip with BYU. He was still in power at that time. We actually left Spain just a couple of years before he died in the mid-'70s, and then the government changed to a prince that became the king of Spain. But during the time that Franco was there, they had had that bloody, horrible civil war where half the country really was trying to resist his rule, and they were treated incredibly harshly, many of them executed, you know, slave labor was used or prison labor was used to build monuments to Franco. I mean, it, it was a very tender and painful situation. There's a lot of still, a lot of hurt from people whose families were, were hurt by Franco and his government. I won't go into it. It's very interesting to me. They actually just reburied him, and they took his body out of this beautiful monument called Valle de los Caídos. And it was very controversial, and took a long, you know, but because the wounds are still there in Spain— So what happened after that, I mean, Franco had kind of an iron fist on the whole country, right? And after that, Spain went a little nuts. And the mafia really increased, and pornography and sexual crimes and so on really increased, as well as the whole sex trafficking thing. And this happened also in the USSR. Once the Soviet Union fell, and communism there kind of ended— People were not equipped well to deal with things, and so crime really proliferated. And again, you've heard about the Russian mob and how scary they are and sex traffickers from there and a lot of of debauchery again that ensued after they had been controlled with his iron fist. And one of the reasons that I've considered about that is that the people who don't have freedom don't get to practice using their agency in good ways because so many decisions are made for them. Now, I know there's a difference between agency and freedom, and you can never lose your agency when it comes right down to it, because we can always choose to worship God or not, even if we are being oppressed under authoritarian rule. Nevertheless, the exercise of freedom to make decisions and so on, and make good decisions is very circumscribed and sometimes taken away from people who are being governed in such an authoritarian, oppressive manner. So one example that I was talking with Chris about was our time when we served in the prison and since then we've gone back to do different presentations in the prison but for a while we were actually called to teach Sunday school in one of the branches of the prison and we had to go through a training so that we could be accepted by the system as as regular visitors and they did this training and i don't remember a whole bunch of it i mean it was useful stuff but the thing that i remember the most is that they told us that when people are in prison they make about 3 to 4 decisions Per day. That's it. Three to four decisions per day. Like when do they go to the bathroom, maybe, or which of the cafeteria choices they get, or whether they go to the library or to the yard. And it depends on their behavior as to how many of those choices they really get to exercise. So there are very few decisions that people make when they are imprisoned, and then consider that it's basically the same, at least in terms of limited decision making under authoritarian or oppressive rule. The average adult. It is estimated that the average adult who is not imprisoned makes more than 35,000 decisions a day. Think about that. 35,000 decisions a day that the average adult makes, as opposed to three to four decisions a day in prison. So consider, and this is difficult when prisoners leave prison, and it's legendary how difficult it can be to get back into a normal life. They're not used to having the ability to make decisions for themselves. So sometimes that's really difficult and they don't make decisions very well. It has even been said that some people want to go back to prison because that was easier. Okay, forgive the comparison, but I know some of my own children when they were on missions were talking about coming home in their letters toward the end of their mission and saying, you know, the mission is easy. You don't have very many decisions to make. You just choose to be an obedient missionary, choose to do the work of the mission, And a lot of decisions are made for you because you have a schedule, you have a plan, you're supposed to do things in a certain way. But when you come home, all of a sudden there are lots of decisions to make. So even the non-authoritarian or oppressive experience of a mission, but it is somewhat circumscribed because we have our young people voluntarily give up a lot of the decision making for that period in order to serve the Lord on a mission. And it's easier in some respects than having to make the decisions about you know your career and life and marriage and all kinds of important things that will await you after the mission, which hopefully they prepare for and they make well and wisely, which they can do, absolutely, if they're willing to follow the Lord and live his principles. So we have lots of success stories of return missionaries. Don't get daunted. Missions are wonderful, and they do give us a chance to, to consecrate time to the Lord, preparing for the rest of our lives on that mission to to live a devoted life to the Lord and a consecrated life. Okay, so what's my point? These people were not normal. <laughs> they were not—I mean, it's too often I think people think, well, wow, you know, what if God imposed all those things on us now? And it's like, well, he's not going to, because that's not the situation. We're not so quick to go whoring after other gods, I hope. Not to say that we're immune from sin— But if we haven't lived in the condition of slavery for all those years, it's not nearly as tough for us to be obedient as it may have been for these people. So God invited them to live at a higher level. They completely rejected that because of their practices that were so much reflective of the conditions in which they had lived. They didn't handle freedom very well for a long time. And God then imposed these schoolmaster laws out. This is a beautiful point that I'm about to make here that I'm not taking credit for. It comes from Cleon Skousen from this volume of his Old Testament trilogy. And it's, I think it's a beautiful point. In the days of the patriarchs, animal sacrifices had been very simple. They were made with only one purpose in mind, and that was to point toward the great sacrifice of the Son of God in the meridian of time. Now, however, the carnal commandments made these sacrifices a rigid teaching device, an attention holder, a gargantuan burden of ritualistic mechanics designed to form habits of obedience. And that's what they needed. They needed to form some habits of obedience, making choices to be obedient, which they were not doing easily. And then Skousen quotes from Isaiah Chapter 1, verses 11 through 15, and quoting from those verses, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. When ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Now, pause for a moment. This is kind of a lamentation of the Lord saying, I didn't want to have to impose all these extra sacrifices. There was a law of simple sacrifice, but not all these schoolmaster ritualistic mechanistic Sacrifices where you have to do all these different killings of animals in order to focus your attention and try to build these habits of obedience. So that's what he's saying. To what purpose is this of all this multitude of sacrifices unto me? Like, that's not what I really have ever wanted from my people. It was necessary to impose that on these very weak, very quick to mischief, stiff-necked people in the house of Israel. I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he-goats. And then he follows that lamentation with a plea, not just to them, but to us. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. That's all he's ever wanted is our obedience, is giving our will to God and doing things in his way so we can have what he wants to give us. Cease to do evil, the verse continues, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. And then this familiar verse in Isaiah 118, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And then this summary statement, If ye are willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. Again, it's like, do you think I want all these dead animals, all this blood, all these ritualistic offerings? Do you think I wanted to impose that on my people? No, but you were so weak that I couldn't listen to your prayers. I couldn't help you when you asked for it because you were so quick to disobey. And at serious levels, you went and involved yourself in sin as the pagans around you and completely offended the Lord. So yes, I had to impose this, but that's not what I wanted. I wanted you to be willing and obedient so that I could give you all the blessings that were in store for my people. A similar story that we haven't come to yet, but I'm going to give a little preview because it's so connected. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Maybe you remember this situation. Saul has been commanded to eliminate one of the Canaanite tribes. And Samuel, the prophet, had given him the instructions of the Lord to not leave one person alive. Kill all of them. Because, again, so debauched, so licentious, so steeped in pagan practices, we don't want to send any more children into this group of people. So eliminate all of them and even kill all the sheep and the oxen and the cattle. Let's eliminate this entire group. I don't want anybody to be enriched from their flocks or fields. We're just going to consider this a tainted you know, existence. So we're going to cleanse it from the earth. Samuel gave that clear instruction to Saul. Saul disobeyed. He kept the king alive and he kept some of the best of the cattle and the animals alive. And then as Samuel, after the battle, is coming to meet with Saul, he hears the sound of of the rams and the oxen. And he says that, what is this that I hear? You know, this bleeding of sheep, etc." And Saul comes up with this flimsy excuse, well, I was going to sacrifice these to God. And Samuel replies and says, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Again, do you think that's what he wants, is a bunch of dead animals? More blood and sacrifice? Yes, that is the schoolmaster law. God designated it to try to focus their attention on basic obedience. But is that what God really wants? And now you're going to throw that in God's face and say, oh, well, I'll sacrifice it to you even though I'm completely disobeying what you told me to do. Samuel concludes with this famous verse, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. And for that reason, Saul is basically divested of the approval of God as king of Israel and another is raised in his place. Skousen's conclusion to me is so tender and heart-wrenching. He says this, all through the Old Testament, this message resounds. It is the pathetic plea of a heavenly parent who has been betrayed. May we keep that in mind May we keep that in mind. All God has ever wanted from us is our obedience, our willing obedience, where we choose to give to the Lord what he asks of us, compliance with our covenants, which bring upon us blessings unmeasured and untold. He wants to give us all that he has, but it must be done in his way. And when we think that we can pull a fast one and say, well, I'll just give you extra of this or pay 15% tithing or I'll do my callings extra well or whatever, but I'm not going to obey. We're just like the children of Israel. (laughs) May, May that never be true of us. May we choose to be his willingly obedient children so that we can become holy as he is holy. Brothers and sisters, great stuff here. I hope you enjoyed it. I invite you again, if you're interested, to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot forward slash Choosing Glory. If you'd like to subscribe and help to support this podcast, thanks to all of you for being a part of this and listening to this podcast. Thanks to my husband, Chris Anderson, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital. Let's build Zion, folks. Let's choose glory. Take care.